Turn in your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Let me uh, mention again what an honor it is to be here. I, I truly appreciate your pastor's friendship. I appreciate his, his scholarship, uh, his desire to uh, pursue the truth and not only know what we believe but know why we believe it. And uh, I know that if you sit under his preaching, for, if you have sat under his preaching for very long, uh, you, get some, you get some rich truth and some rich things uh, to help you live your life. And so <clears throat> I don't want to try to preach anything deep this morning because I, wouldn't, I don't think I would measure up to your pastor's ability to, to preach. But uh, I want to give you some practical thoughts on Bible translation and uh, pray that it will be a help to you. Uh, I want to give you some things this morning that maybe you've never thought about, but once I say them, I think they're going to make a lot of sense to you. Uh, I, do have, I do have nine points to the message this morning, and before you get too worried, we will get out, we will get out on time, and I want to make What's a promise. Time? Pardon? What's on time? On, on time is whenever I'm done. Um, <laughs> but since I have so many points to this sermon, I'll make a promise to you. The next time I come and preach here, it'll be pointless. <laughs> okay? <laughs> kind of get that in waves, don't you? <laughs> I believe that the translation of God's Word is the key to completing the Great Commission. I don't believe there's any other work we can do that will have such thorough and eternal impact on a culture. And if I had time to list for you this morning our core values, we have five core values that guide our ministry, and the first one of those is church planting. So I don't want to suggest by what I'm saying here that we don't think other things are important we really believe that the ultimate goal of translating God's Word is so churches can be planted. We're not interested in giving them a book and walking away. We're interested in giving them the Bible so that churches can be planted, people can be discipled, and a culture can be reached with the gospel of Christ. Mark 16, 15 said we're to reach every creature. And we won't do that until we get them the Word of God in their own language and they can reach their own with the gospel because there will never be enough of us. And I'm getting ahead of myself in my, in my message this morning. There are 7,105 languages spoken in the world today. Out of that number, only 513 have a whole Bible. Is that a startling number to you? <clears throat> a few have a New Testament and a few have a portion of Scripture, but if you subtract it out, it's more than 4,000 languages that are still waiting for one verse. More than 4,000 languages waiting for one verse. Now, it may be easy for us to just kind of dismiss that and say, with a sympathetic heart, we might say, you know, those people don't have the Word of God. That's a sad thing. Somebody ought to do something about that. But we ought to take some time to meditate on what it would mean if you grew up and if you lived and you grew up in a culture that never had God's Word. There would be several questions you would be asking that would have no answer. The first of those questions would be, where did I come from? You know, the answer to where we came from is found in God's Word. In the beginning, what? God created. You know what that does for you? You know how real, you realize how much that changes your life? To know that you are, you are created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It gives you a purpose for life. doesn't give you a reason to live. It gives meaning to your existence. And if you never read God's Word in your language, you might believe some myth or legend that was passed down from generation to generation about how life began, but you don't have the authority on it until you have God's Word. And so their lives are meaningless in many cases. They have no purpose for living, which leads to the second question, and that is, who is God? 
If you don't know where you came from, you don't know who God is. If you don't have a Bible, you don't know who God is. And so all of these cultures that don't have the Bible are polytheistic. They worship many different gods because they have to, they have, to have a god of the harvest. Somebody's controlling the harvest and somebody controls the sun and somebody controls the moon and the stars and the rivers and the water and all of that. So we have to have all these different gods. And all of our worship toward our gods is based on an appeasement for fear of retribution. If we don't please our gods in some way, we don't make some kind of sacrifice to them, they're going, they're going to do bad things to our family. I'm glad I don't serve God out of that motivation, don't you? aren't you? I don't, I don't serve Him because I fear Him. Now, I do fear God, but it's, it's a biblical fear. It's not a fear of His unpredictability. I know who He is and what He is, and I know how He, he uh, guides in the affairs of men, and so I fear Him because of His holiness, but I'm not afraid of God. I'm not trying to appease him because I think he's going to hit me on the head with a big stick. And that's the way these people live their entire life. The third question is, how do I live? How am I supposed to live? If, think about this. If you don't have God's word, you don't have a foundation upon which to build your life. It's whatever you think or whatever somebody else told you is right. As, as bad as it is getting in America, as far as we are straying from our moral foundation... We were still founded on moral principles. We are founded on the Word of God. The laws of our nation are based on the laws of God. And that has shaped our culture. The reason in most areas of our country that I'm not afraid to drive down the street at night or walk down the street at night is because we have laws governing our behavior. But societies without God's Word, cultures without God's Word, have practices that are so immoral and illicit and lewd that I wouldn't describe in mixed company and you might say, well, well, how in the world can people behave like that? I'll tell you how. They don't have the moral foundation of God's Word. So they don't know where they came from. They don't know who God is. They don't know how to live. You know that everything you know about how to live a successful Christian life comes from this book right here? Everything you know about how to live life, period, comes from Bible principles. So now the next question they're asking that has no answer is, where am I going? And I want you to just think for one moment and then take this home with you and think on it some more. How would you like to live your life not knowing where you came from, not knowing who God is, not knowing how you're supposed to live, and then close your eyes in death and wake up in the flames of hell? Asking, why am I here and where am I and how long is this going to last and how, why is it so hot here and why did no one ever tell me about this place? And never getting out. How would you like to live your life with that kind of a miserable existence and then face an eternal uh, suffering in hell? That's where these people are without God's Word. And so how can we change that? We have to put the Bible in their language. So what is the value of putting the Word of God in the language of the people? <clears throat> we'll get to our text in Acts chapter 20 in just a moment. But before we get there, let's stop and have a word of prayer. Lord, thank You for the power of Your Word. And Lord, we just want to simply thank you for your word. We've had it in our language all of our lives. There's never been a time in my life or the life of any person in this room when we have not been able to pick up a Bible and read the word of God. You've shown us so much grace and mercy, and we're grateful. I pray you'll burden our hearts in a fresh way this morning about those who are still waiting for it and our responsibility to do something about it.
And I ask for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. When a missionary begins to minister to a people that do not have God's word, he must become a translator. If I go to, and I'll use the illustration this morning of Papua New Guinea. If I go to Papua New Guinea and I want to preach the gospel, I have to learn the language of the people or I have to have somebody translate or interpret for me as I preach the gospel. If I don't translate it into a language they understand, they can't be saved. Now, when I do that, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation so I can win some people to Christ. Amen right there? Now, I continue preaching God's word to them through my translator, and those people can grow in grace to a point. But if the only, pre- if the only, word, if the only scripture you got was the scripture your pastor preached from on Sunday, your spiritual growth would be limited. No pastor is content for his people just to get the truth preached on Sunday. Every pastor challenges his people to go home and open the book for yourself and let the Spirit of God teach you himself from this book. Amen? That's how you grow spiritually. That's how your, your, your spiritual life, the potential of your spiritual life can be realized. It's when you develop your own relationship with God through a prayer life and through the ministry of the Word. Now, this missionary can reach these people, but it will reach a point where it's no longer acceptable just to translate the Scripture verbally, to translate the truth verbally. It'll reach a point where it's necessary to put it in print and let them read it for themselves and develop the relationship with God like I just described. The next thing that's going to happen is at some point that missionary is going to leave. He may stay there 25 or 30 years, but at some point he's going to retire and go back home His wife is sick. Circumstances will dictate that he can't remain on that mission field. And so he leaves these people. And my question is, what will he leave them with? Will he leave them with just the memory of what he taught? And should they be expected to remember all of that? The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 was meeting with the elders of Ephesus at the port city of Miletus. And that starts in verses 17 and 18 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. But in Paul's meeting with these men and encouraging them about the future of the church of Ephesus and and the future of the ministry, we get all the way down to verse number 32, Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, and Paul says these words. And now, brethren, he's about to walk away, he's about to leave these men and never see them again, and he says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God, and read the next phrase out loud with me, would you? And to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Paul says, I'm leaving. I won't be here to instruct you anymore. I won't be here to encourage you and challenge you. And I commend you to God and the word of His grace. Now, the truth of the matter is, no matter how strongly or fervently or energetically or convincingly your pastor preaches to you, when the sermon is done... All he has to do is commend you to God and to his word. I've given you the truth and I've given you the book. It's up to you to obey it. It's up to you to live it, right? If a missionary is in a a people group where they don't have the Bible, what will he commend them to? I hope you can remember everything I taught you. I hope you can remember all the truths that are supposed to be guiding your life. We have to put the Bible in their language. Let me very quickly give you nine practical reasons that's necessary. Number one, it makes the Word of God accessible to many people and not just a few of us. We have to consider the impact of God's Word. 
And this goes right along with what I was just talking about um, with, with there not being enough American missionaries to reach the world. We have to reach every creature with the gospel. We'll never do that until we penetrate every nation, every people group of the gospel, and provide them with the tools necessary to reach and evangelize and disciple their own people. And that tool is the Word of God. Can you say amen right there? Do you know why Tibet is still unreached with the gospel? Because they've never had God's Word in their language. History, the history of the world proves that no nation has ever become a Christian-majority nation without the Word of God in their language. I don't care how many missionaries we send. I don't care how many churches we plant. Lasting efforts and lasting results are only produced when they have a Bible and it becomes part of their culture and part of their people and it becomes their faith and their religion and their church and their Word of God. Amen. Number two, it communicates to people that they are of value to God. Do you, did you hear what Dawa said in the video that if it's not in their language, they don't think it's meant for them? <clears throat> when you read the Bible, and you know this is true. If, you've ever, if you're saved and you've ever read the Bible, you know this is true. This is a powerful book. It's not just a history book. It's not just a poetry book. It's not just information. It's not just print on a page. There's a spiritual power behind this book that touches your heart. If you can't read this book in your language, that's absent. Think about it. A Guatemalan Indian asked Cameron Townsend, uh, a Bible translator many years ago, if your God is so great, can he not speak my language? Uh, a, an African convert was reached by, or an African man was reached by a missionary and, and, uh, and, and became a Christian and was discipled by that missionary for several years. And then one day that missionary handed this man a copy of the New Testament in his heart language. And here's what the man said after he read it for the first time. He said, to me, before we had God's word in our language, it was like God was coming every Sunday to visit us, dressed in another culture and another language, and the rest of the week we had no God. If you don't put it in their language, they don't think it's meant for them. I got on the plane to go to Uganda a year ago, and I sat down beside a Ugandan lady who happened to be reading her Bible, and she was reading in English. Later in the flight, I, I struck up a conversation with her, and I said, are you a Christian? She said, oh, yes. I said, I noticed you were reading your Bible. I said, where's your home? She said, I'm from Kampala, Uganda. I said, what language do you speak? She said, Luganda. I said, you are reading the Bible in English. I didn't tell her I was a Bible translator. She didn't know who I was. Uh, that We do Bible translation. I, she didn't know who I was. So I said, you are reading the Bible in English. She said, I've lived in Washington, D.C. for several years, and I'm comfortable reading English. And then she volunteered this information to me. She said, when I go visit my family in Uganda, she said, there's nothing like hearing the Word of God preached in my language and hearing the Bible read in my language and God worshiped in my language. And I said, thank you very much for the illustration. I'll share it with the whole, the whole country. <laughs> but see, it communicates value. The, the translated Word of God communicates to the heart. It's more than just words on a page. It's a spiritual force in the heart. There are places in the world where they, they have what we call trade languages. For example, all across India, you will find over 700 languages and dialects. But 460 million people speak, or understand at least, the Hindi language. So people have said to me before, why don't, why don't you just give them a Hindi Bible? There's a Bible in that language. If they can understand Hindi, just give them the Hindi Bible. Can I tell you, that's not good enough for them. 
I've had people tell me this, why don't you just teach everybody to read English? Can I tell you that's not sufficient either? There's several reasons that, sh- that won't work, but, but let's, let's, turn the, let's turn that around and put it on us. Why don't you learn Chinese if you want to know what God has to say? There are more Chinese-speaking people. There are three times more native Chinese speakers than there are native English speakers. So if we're going to put the Bible in a language that reaches more people in the world than any other language, it should be in Chinese, not English. And we should be learning Chinese. Now, two things are going to happen right there. A lot of us would say, that's not, that's not right. You mean if I want to know what God has to say, I've got to learn a new language? That doesn't seem right. And then for those of us who are my age and older, we would just give up before we get started because that would be a very difficult language to learn. So we wouldn't accept that imposition placed upon us. And if you have to learn a new language in order to understand God's Word, then why didn't we all have to learn Greek and Hebrew? How about that thought? Why did God oversee and superintend and divinely uh, uh, supervise the translation of His Word into into a language I can understand? So they need it too. It communicates value to their heart. I personally think if we're going to put the language, uh, put the Bible in a language that is best understood, it should be in hillbilly English because that's my heart language. <clears throat> Number three, it plants the gospel in the culture. As long as the gospel we preach comes from the book in our language, it will always be a foreign religion to them. It will always be the religion the missionary brought over from a different place. And I know, you know, the difference here is when, about this. Uh, well, let, me, let me give you my illustration first. <clears throat> I don't know if there's one in this area, but I know if you go to Columbus, Ohio, or Toledo, Ohio, you're going to see mosques. Anybody ever saw, seen those? When you drive by a mosque, how many of you have this thought? Oh, that's normal. That fits. That belongs. You don't think that, do you? You know what you think? That's out of place. That mosque doesn't belong here. That's not the religion of our, of, our, of our nation. We're a Christian nation. Now, those mosques are becoming more and more common, and it's becoming more and more a part of the landscape of America, but you and I will never accept that as part of the religious landscape of our country. Amen right there? We could use another example. What about a Hindu who moves to America from India and knocks on your door and says, I am starting a Hindu temple, and I would like to invite you to come and visit my Hindu temple? Does that sound normal to you? It's not. Now, let's turn that cultural aspect the other way. We go to India or we go to the Middle East and we start telling these people about a God they never heard of and we we start reading them from a book they've never read and we start telling them a gospel they've never heard before and the cultural implications are the same. It's a foreign religion and it doesn't belong in the religious landscape of our people. Now, the difference is we do have the truth, and the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, so it can change people's lives. Amen right there? But the cultural implications are there. And so what changes that is when we put the scripture in their language, and the gospel can be birthed out of their culture and their language, it becomes their faith. It changes all of that. Number four, it becomes a catalyst for a church planting movement. See, we're not really interested in just planting churches because a church can be planted by a missionary, but a church planting movement is what is necessary if we're to reach every creature with the gospel. And that's why we partner with, uh, in our Bible translation effort, it's always done in conjunction with church planting. Number five, it allows national pastors to preach the gospel with authority. 
Suppose the village I went to in Papua New Guinea and I began to win people to Christ and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, so they got saved. They began to grow in the faith. And suppose a young man walks up to me and says, God's burdened my heart to go to the next village. I want to proclaim to them the same gospel you have given to us. I want to see them come to Jesus Christ like we came to Jesus Christ. And I say to that young man, that's a wonderful thing. Why don't you go? Well, they speak a different language over there. So when he gets over there, what's he going to say? The American missionary that came to my village told me a story about God and, and his son, Jesus, who died on the cross. And they'll say to him, Where, where's your authority for this story? Well, well the, the missionary from America told me, is that good enough authority? It's not. But if you could give him a Bible in the language of those people and he could go and say, thus saith the Lord, I have authority right here. Do you know that a national pastor can proclaim, a, uh, proclaim truth in a real and penetrating way that speaks to his own culture like I would never be able to do no matter how many years I live there? I'll never become one of them. But he can stand with his Bible in his language and he can speak directly to the hearts of his people. If you go to our website and watch our Uganda ministry video on the Run in Kore language project, you'll see one of our translators whose name is Eliab, Pastor Eliab. He's in his mid to late 60s, just a dear man. If you spend an hour with him, you'd love him the rest of your life. He says on the video, <clears throat> when I have to translate from English to Run in Kore, I don't always get the real meaning, but when I can preach in Run in Kore, I get, I get the real meaning of the text. It changes everything about the way they can preach. Number six, it becomes the means of helping the churches mature. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35, now listen to this, we're not going to read all of them, but in 18 verses, Paul mentions the Word of God or the preaching of the Word of God nine times in 18 verses. Paul put a lot of confidence. He put a lot of emphasis on the Word of God. We could look at all those verses, but we won't for time's sake. But I want to point your attention to just a couple of them. Look at, look at verse number 20, 28. <clears throat> Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Read the next phrase with me, please. To feed the church of God. How can a pastor feed the flock if he doesn't have a Bible? Isn't that very simple? Look at verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Therefore, or and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to what again? Say it with me. The word of His grace. What is the solution to preserving the purity of doctrine in a church? What's the answer? What's the help? The Word of God. When I was pastoring in Mansfield, a family in our church had a son who was a preacher. He was transitioning between ministries, and so he came to spend about three or four months with his family there in Mansfield before he moved on to his next ministry assignment. And he started having Bible studies with some of my people without my knowing about it, and I found out that he was teaching them a false doctrine. And I'll tell you how I responded. I went to the closet and got my shotgun. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. But you know how I responded? I got behind the pulpit one Sunday night and I said, please open your Bibles too. And I gave him a passage of scripture and I preached the truth. You know the best way to expose error? Expose the truth. 
And so I dealt with the false doctrine, the false teaching in my church by the authority of God's Word. That helped my church. Now, what's a man supposed to do in a, in, a, in a foreign culture if he doesn't have the Word of God and somebody comes in and starts teaching something false? He might, he might say, well, you know, I don't think that's true. I, I remember what the missionary taught me, and I don't think that's right. That's not a good enough authority. But if he can open his Bible and say, look, this is what God says, and that's not true, that'll do it, won't it? Think about this. As the church studies God's Word they can begin to apply spiritual principles to the social and cultural issues of their day. I know abortion is far more than a social issue, but think about abortion in America. Why do we believe abortion is murder? Because of God's Word. All right, you're in a Muslim setting, and they have three or four wives. What are you going to do about that? The pastor can say, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea. Now, my approach to that would be, why would any guy in the world want more than one mother-in-law? But that's not good enough either. <clears throat> but how will, the church shape, how will the church shape their teaching and their doctrine to respond to that cultural and social issue of their day or their, 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 uh, their land without this book? Do you see the necessity of God's Word in their language? Can you say amen right there? Number seven, it helps avoid syncretism. Syncretism simply means the blending of religions. Uh, the, the religion of Sikhism, S-I-K-H, is a blend of Islam and Hinduism. Uh, all across Africa, I've been to Mali, I've been to Tunisia, I've been to Uganda three times. If you ask people, many of them will tell you, I'm a Muslim. But if you follow them around long enough, you'll find them going to worship their ancestors at the grave. And you'll find them practicing demonic rituals because they have mixed Islam and animism. It's a, strange, it's a strange mix. So what's to protect the church that you plant as a missionary and then you leave in the hands of a national pastor? What's to prevent that church from blending some of the falsehoods of the religions around them and mixing it in with the truth? The truth. The Word of God is what prevents that. The Word of God is what keeps the church pure. Number eight, it means that God can be glorified by another kindred and tongue. Revelation 5, 9 and 7, 9 describe the final scene at the throne of God when we're all gathered around from every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation. Could I, could I just very quickly tell you that from Genesis 1-1 to the last chapter of Revelation, that is the mission of God. The mission of God is to reveal His name to this world, declare His glory to this world, and draw people from all over this world to Himself. And I wish I had time to preach on that this morning. That's the mission of God. It's a singular mission. We use the word missions because we're talking about missionaries in different locations, but it's only one mission. It's about proclaiming His name and giving people the gospel so they can come to God. And so one of these days, my prayer and my hope is that some of the Loa Tibetan people speaking the Loa language will be gathered at the throne of God because God used our ministry to help get them the scripture in their language and churches were planted. And people were saved. And the Loa people would be gathered at His throne. Can I tell you another little secret about that? Some of them are going to be there with or without my help. Because God's mission is to draw some from every. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to stand there knowing that God did it without me. 
And I know he can do it without me, but you understand what I mean by that? I don't want to stand there knowing that I missed it. I want to be part of the plan of gathering the peoples, of gathering some from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And the last one, though it's not necessarily the least important, is that it has practical impact on a people and a culture in a way nothing else ever can. You have to know this is true. The Bible changes everything. The Bible changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you view each other. It changes your marriage. It changes the way you raise your children. It changes your work ethic. The Bible is the answer to poverty. I know Jesus said the poor you have with you always, but the answer to mass poverty is the Word of God. Think about this. In India, they worship the cows. If they would eat the cows, not as many people would be hungry. They worship the rats. They have entire temples built and dedicated to the rats, and people come in and give them food and milk. But if they would kill the rats, their crops wouldn't be destroyed, and people wouldn't be dying of starvation. That's not a social issue alone. That's a Bible issue. It would change it. It would change everything. And so with 4,288 languages still waiting, I suggest that we get serious about the business of putting the Bible in the language of people who are still waiting for it. Now, in response to this message, I want to say this. I'm praying that God will call Bible translators from Grace Baptist Church. Before you throw up your hands and say, I could never do that, first of all, I'd like to suggest you don't tell God what you won't do. But before you throw your hands up and say, that, that's not something I could ever do, would you consider that God might help you become what He wants you to do? If, if, you're, if you want to be a medical doctor, there's a course of study to learn how to be a doctor. If you want to be an electrical engineer, there's a course of study to learn engineering. And if you want to be a Bible translator, there's a course of study you can follow. and You could learn what God wants you to know in order to do what God is calling you to do. So maybe God would call somebody here today. Now, I don't expect that God would call everybody here, so I have a challenge for every one of us, and that is that you would pray that God would call more Bible translators. You know, when Jesus saw the multitude scattered as sheep without a shepherd, you know what his response was? Everybody go get busy. See, all those people need to be reached. You preach to that crowd over there. John and James, you get that one, and Peter, you get that one, and Andrew, you get that one. Jesus didn't say, get a better strategy, get more organized, and work harder. He said, look at all those people. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. And honestly, I want to tell you this with all my heart, I believe it. The greatest thing you can do for the evangelization of the world is pray for more laborers. My wife and I in our family made it a practice some time ago, quite some time ago, that at least three times a day when we sit down to a meal, we're going to include in our prayer, Lord, please send more laborers to the unreached fields of the world. At least three times a day, I want to be obedient to the command of the Lord to pray for laborers. And with 4,000 languages still waiting, we need more laborers in the field of Bible translation. Would you covenant to join with us in prayer about that need? And the third challenge I have for you is this. The Word of God contains the greatest story ever told. And that's the story of Jesus Christ who became a man 
became one of us, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross to pay for our sins. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do that this morning. There will be people right here that can take a Bible and show you how you can know Jesus. He wants a relationship with you. You know, that's what the whole world is after. You, you go to the, to, the, to the most intense Muslim areas of our world, and I'll tell you what they're looking for. They're looking for a relationship with God and the forgiveness of their sins. That's what we all want, isn't it? It's a desire God put in us. And you can find that this morning if you come to Jesus. If you don't know him, I beg you to come this morning. Let's bow together.